Good morning. My name is Corey. I'm a very grateful and enthusiastic member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen. Um, I've come prepared. I have a pen to write down the time so I know exactly what time I started. It may not make a bit of difference, but at least I have it. I have Kleenex because I'm a tad teary-eyed. I have water. I won't drink it until I'm done Um, because I have a lot to say and a very little amount of time to say it. Um, Before I start with my thank yous, I want to say a prayer for me. Feel free to absorb it, but it just helps me focus a little bit. May we be well, happy, and peaceful. May no harm come to us. May we always meet with spiritual success. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May we always rise above them with morality, integrity, forgiveness, compassion, mindfulness, and wisdom. I want to thank Ed for inviting me to come and participate in this conference. It's always an honor and a privilege when I'm asked to participate, um, particularly in an Alcoholics Anonymous conference. We got sick together. I love that we get well together. So thank you for inviting me to participate. Um, I want to thank Bonnie for being a great hostess. She picked me up at the airport yesterday. Uh, Mo and Kelly were there just in case she didn't show up. And I thought, she's Al-Anon. Of course she'll show up. Um, And she did, because we actually do show up. And... um, Uh, If I say anything that sounds like I'm denigrating alcoholics, please know that I'm not. I absolutely love alcoholics. That's how I ended up here 25 years ago is because I love alcoholics. I still do to this day. Um, I'm so grateful I get to be here with Jane and with with, uh, James. I was with Jane in October. Uh, She threw up through my entire talk then. If she runs out again today, we'll know it's me and not food poisoning. Um, I'm thrilled that I get to be here with Lyle. I remember the first time I heard Lyle speak. I don't remember anything Lyle said when he spoke. I had less than a year in Al-Anon. My husband and I had had an incredibly intense conversation about tattoos. I was adamantly against him getting one. He was adamantly in favor of getting one. I left that that conversation knowing that my husband loved me so much he was not getting a tattoo. You all apparently understand alcoholics way better than I did at that point. He left that conversation knowing that although I didn't want him to get a tattoo, he was getting one. Um, And the way I found out he got a tattoo was we were sitting at an old-timers picnic in August of um, 1999. Lyle was a Saturday night speaker. Uh, I was at the picnic table. A guy sitting across the table from me said, what do you think of his tattoo? And I said, what? And he said, it's a little one. Again, differences in perceptions. Um, and then they said a moment of silence and the serenity prayer, and then Lyle spoke. I have no idea what he said because I kept thinking he got a tattoo. How could he get a tattoo? He must not love me. He got a tattoo. Um, and then in case you're wondering about perception, when I heard little tattoo, I thought, little tattoo. I married an alcoholic. Giant tattoo. What Alan's taught me to do is to be incredibly grateful that I can now recognize that he has incredibly beautiful artwork on his arm. And having a tattoo does not mean what I thought it meant. Um, But so I'm looking forward to hearing Lyle tonight and actually hearing Lyle this evening. Um, I got here, actually I take that back, we got here on September 18th, 1998, on my two-month wedding anniversary. I had met, I had waited until I was almost 36 years old to meet and marry the perfect man, and he was a raging alcoholic when I did it. And I did not think there was anything wrong with me that his not drinking as much would not fix. I didn't want him to quit drinking completely because I realize now, having done the work that I've done in Al-Anon, what I wanted was him to drink like me. 
I wanted him to act like me. I wanted him to um, have my politics. I wanted him to read the things I wanted to read. And the most important thing of all, I wanted him to think like me. And um, there used to be a speaker who since passed away, he said his wife used to get, got very, very sick due to prolonged exposure to him. And what I have... <laughs> And what I have come to realize in Al-Anon is I thought that Kent would get extremely well due to his prolonged exposure to me. <laughs> and I thought that eventually he would think like me. We've been in almost 24, almost 25 years, and today we still think completely different. But what Al-Anon has done for me is allowed that to be okay. Um, I got here and I came here for him. I was going to help him stay sober because I'm really good at helping. Um, I stay for me. I didn't come to Al-Anon because I wanted it. I didn't come to Al-Anon because I thought I needed it. I came because I thought, well, I came because the treatment nurse or the treatment family counselor said, if you love him, you go to Al-Anon. And I thought, well, for God's sakes, woman, I've just married him. Of course I love him. Fine, I will go to Al-Anon. Um, and I didn't realize there was anything wrong with me. I know how difficult it is to get to Al Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it's even harder to get to Al-Anon, and I think it's even harder to stay in Al-Anon. Because how do you ask for help when there's nothing wrong with you? There was nothing wrong with me that his not drinking wouldn't fix. I did not realize that I was indeed the problem. James talked so eloquently this morning about alcohol being the solution. For me, the solution has always been an alcoholic. He will make me feel better. She will make me feel better. If I just have somebody else, I will feel better. Because for as long as I can remember, I have always felt less than. I have always compared my insides to everybody else's outsides. I have always thought if I was taller, if I was smarter, if I was shorter, if I was cuter, if I was funnier, if I was more serious, if I was something other than what I, who I was, I would feel better about myself. That's an inside job. And for me, I never could have failed it with alcohol. Alcohol doesn't do for me what I hear it does for alcoholics. But I will tell you what does do it for me, an alcoholic. I get an alcoholic and I get that sense of ease and comfort of the, ah, I have a project. I now have somebody I can work on. If I can make you okay, then I can be okay. If you look good, I'll look good. You know, I talked about wanting to help him. I didn't know my help was deadly. I didn't know my help was fatal. And when you told me that I got here to stop helping, I thought if I stop helping, I will disappear into the woodwork. I will not be who I am. What I have discovered is if I am my own problem, I get to be my own solution. I don't have to wait on somebody else to get better for me to be okay. And what I've also discovered here um, is that a lot of times things don't get better and people don't get better, but I can be okay no matter what's going on. And I'm so incredibly grateful for that. Um, I said I got here on our two-month wedding anniversary. I'm going to tell you how I got here because I didn't think I needed to be here. What happened to me was um, I met a man who happens to be afflicted with a disease of alcoholism. He is a great guy. I absolutely adore my husband. I have his permission to break his anonymity. Um, we, he's my best friend on this planet. I have so much fun with him. Um, he's much, so much more than his alcoholism. But I met a man who was afflicted with a disease of alcoholism. And um, the week before we got here, and I say we intentionally, because, we, because when we got married, he and I ceased to be he and I, and we became a we. We were then going to do everything together. I didn't tell him that, but I knew, I knew he wanted that as much as I did. So we were going to be a couple, and that meant we were going to do everything together. And um, I know today that love has absolutely nothing to do with alcoholism. If love could get you people sober, you'd all be sober because that is the one thing I will tell you. If you've ever been loved by an alcoholic, you will know. You've been loved from right about here to right underneath your feet because we love you with everything in our fiber.
And if you said to a room full of Anand, one of you needs to take a hit with a baseball bat and everybody else will be, will be cured of alcoholism, pretty much every member of Anand would say, I'll take that hit because we love you and we want you to be healthy, happy, and whole. The problem is we can't make you healthy, happy, and whole. I'm so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous um, because you guys can make each other healthy, happy, and whole. I listened to the traditions being read, and it said we are, our traditions are almost word for word the same as Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you know the only word that's changed in our tradition from yours is in the 12th step? We carry the message... We carry the message to others. You carry the message to alcoholics, because apparently we suck at carrying the message to alcoholics. <laughs> so you guys get to carry the message to each other, and we get to carry the message to the rest of the planet. Um, because I can't get my loved one sober, and I'm so grateful that I know that today. I did not know that when I got here. So what happened to us the week before we got here was my husband loved me enough to get up one morning and take me to go play putt-putt golf at Callaway Garden, which is about an hour and a half from where I live. It's the closest place we have to play putt-putt. I suck at putt-putt, but I love it. And my husband loved me enough to get up and go and take me there to play putt-putt golf. What I did not know at that time was my husband was a daily drinker, and he couldn't do anything besides drink in the mornings, and he chose not to drink that morning to take me to play putt-putt golf, and I did not know that. Um, and I did not know what that meant for him as an alcoholic um, to not do that. So we drove out there. We get out there to play putt-putt golf, and I know when we are there something is not quite right with my husband. Uh, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about being restless, irritable, and discontent. Our friends in Canada call it itchy, bitchy, and twitchy. <laughs> and that is a much better description because my husband was twitchy. He was very, very twitchy that morning. And I said to him, do we need to leave? And he said yes. And I don't know why I said what I said next. I have no idea why I said it. But I said it. It came right out of my mouth. I said, do we need to stop and get you beer for the ride home? And my husband said, no. But everything in him changed when he said no. And I don't know what that was. But for me, when I don't know what to do, I don't do anything. I'm like that freeze or flight thing. Yeah, I don't know what to do. And so I don't do anything. So we didn't talk about it. We, we to this day have not talked about it. I've talked about it a lot. We have never talked about it. But what happens for me is my brain goes into this place, not of delusion, but it just completely eliminates any controversy. So by the time I got home, I didn't intentionally forget it. I didn't deliberately forget it. I just couldn't process it. So it wasn't there. Got up the next morning, and we, I acted. He acted as if nothing had happened. All right. Four days later, I am leaving the house screaming like a lunatic. I'm the one screaming, and I don't drink, right? I have to go to a professional obligation. I go to this professional obligation. I am on the way home, and I hear a voice as clear as a bell in my head. If you love him, you go to Al-Anon. I'm like, I don't even know what Al-Anon is. And if I don't know what Al-Anon is, and it can't be anything really important because I know everything that's important, <laughs> that's the level of arrogance and ego I brought to you. I am incredibly well-educated, but sometimes alcohol, not sometimes, oftentimes alcoholism makes me stupid. I am profoundly and deeply affected by the family disease of alcoholism, and I have come to believe that my brain is really trying to help me. It's just really bad at it. Um, and so I got home at 10 o'clock that night. I walked in the house, and my husband, Kent, said to me, I can't quit drinking without help. I said, yes, yes, let me help. I'm really good at helping. And I am up, and I've got the Blue Cross Blue Shield provider book, and I'm flipping through it. What do we do for alcoholism? I, have been, I am almost 36 years old. I know intellectually about alcoholism. I know nothing about the disease of alcoholism. I was not raised in alcoholism, to the best of my knowledge. I had been in... 
like to tell you, I'd been involved with a man who was an Alcoholics Anonymous. I was not involved with him. I was stalking him is what I was doing. Um, and we'd go to dinner, and I would say, have a glass of wine. And he'd say, I don't drink. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would say, well, it's a glass of wine. It's not drinking. Now, I do not know why I thought wine, beer, not alcohol. I knew it was alcohol, but it, you couldn't be an alcoholic if you drank beer or wine. That is the insanity of my thought process. Um, and so I knew nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew nothing about treatment. And it said in this book, take him to mental health. So the next morning, I have my husband up at 7 o'clock in the morning. We are the first ones in the door to mental health. And the woman looks at me and she says, do you have insurance? Of course I have insurance. Wherever Brian is, talking about rules and regulations, oh, I love rules and regulations. I am all about following the rules and regulations. It never occurred to me that there were people who did not have insurance. It didn't occur to me there were people who didn't drive with a driver's license. It didn't occur to me um, about any of that stuff because I just assumed everybody did what I did, which was follow the rules. Turns out you guys are so not about the rules. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, I didn't know any of that. And so she said, do you have insurance? Of course I have insurance. Take him to treatment. All right, we're going to treatment. I didn't know we had a treatment center in Montgomery. I didn't know what treatment was. I will tell you what I thought at the time. I wouldn't have been able to put this into words. Everything that I tell you today that I've learned about alcoholism, about Al-Anon, and how I've been profoundly and deeply affected by the family disease of alcoholism is the direct result of going to a lot of Al-Anon meetings, going to a lot of open AA speaker meetings, doing a lot of step work in Al-Anon, having a sponsor who has taken me through that work over and over and over again. None of this is in the real time I'm figuring it out as it happens. But I didn't know we had a treatment center. I didn't know. I, I know now what I thought they were going to do. I thought they were going to go sit him down and explain to him one more time why he shouldn't drink as much as he drinks. Because, you see, I'm a big explainer. I like to explain things to you. And I'm going to explain it to you at the right time, when you're in the right place, sitting in the right chair, and one of two things are going to happen. You're going to say, oh, Corey, how stupid of me not to get this. Of course you are right. We will do it your way. And if that doesn't happen and you don't do that, the only reason that is is because either I did not explain it well enough, so I will explain it again. Highly unlikely that that happened. I'm a really good explainer. So the other thing would be that you were not listening to me the first time I explained it. Much more likely, so I will explain it to you again. When I got here, my husband would do this a lot. And I thought, silly me, that meant, oh, yes, he understands and he agrees with me. No, no. I know today who's saying, please, God, make her shut up. Please, God, make her shut up. Please, God, make her shut up. Um, so I thought, taking him to treatment, they were going to explain to him one more time why he should not drink as much as he was drinking. Um, that is not what happened. What happened was we walked in the treatment center. The treatment nurse says name, and he gave his name, and I gave his name. Way quicker than I was. Birthday, he gave his birthday, I gave his birthday. How much do you drink a night? And I said, eight beers a night, and he said, 18 beers a night. And be, yeah, thank you, those are my people out there. Um, and I, before I could whip around on him and say, 18 beers a night, she looked at me, the intake nurse, and said, What are you, his mother? And I was insulted and offended. I thought she was suggesting I looked old and tired. Turns out, I did look old and tired. We have a picture in the bathroom of what we looked like the month before he got sober and I got to Al-Anon, and I looked old and tired. Um, but I thought he was, she was suggesting, I know that she was suggesting I was acting like his mother, but I thought she was suggesting I looked like his mother. And I had been married two months. I was a newlywed, for God's sakes. I was insulted and offended. And before I could whip around on her, she 
kicked me out of her office and sent me down to the family counselor. And I thought, I cannot believe this is my insurance. I cannot believe you were kicking me out of this office. My insurance. Do you not know who I am? How many of you ever had an Alan experience where you said, you don't, do you not know who I am? Turns out they don't and they don't care. Um, but they kicked me out, sent me down to the family counselor's office, and I walked in there, and I do not know if this is what Miss Martha Hurt said, because I have a disease that affects my hearing. I oftentimes hear things that are not said. I have oftentimes heard, um, not heard what actually has been said. I have had entire conversations in my head, so much so to the point I have said to Kent, we've talked about this, and he has said, was I there for the conversation? <laughs> and I've actually had to stop and think, and they'd be like, yes, actually you were there, and then, man, maybe you weren't. But this is what I heard Miss Martha say. And I call her Miss Martha because she was the perfect Southern woman. We were in Montgomery, Alabama. She had the perfectly coiffed hair. She had the nails. She had the makeup. She looked gorgeous. Um, I did not know she was a 20-year member of Al-Anon. I should have, but I didn't. And she said, if you love him, you will go to Al-Anon. And I thought, fine, I'll go to Al-Anon. Of course I love him. And she said, and you cannot see him tomorrow until you do. And I'm like, what do you mean see him tomorrow? She said, oh, we're keeping him. I'm like, what? It never occurred to me they were going to check him in and detox him thought never crossed my mind and she said you have to go to the Al-Anon meeting before you see him at family counseling I, I cannot show up someplace not knowing what is going on I can't show up someplace not looking like I know what's going on I don't actually have to know what's going on I just have to act like I know what's going on and so I went home packed my bag took it back because see I was not prepared for that and then I went home and I started getting online trying to find Al-Anon what is Al-Anon what's an Al-Anon meeting what happens at an Al-Anon meeting because I have to look like I know what's going on um, and God bless those people in that Al-Anon meeting I found an online Al-Anon meeting it was September 18th 1998 um, and Al-Anon meetings online then were not like Al-Anon meetings online now and it was one of those ones where you type in stuff and you know it's like a bulletin board type thing you type in and God bless those people every single one in that meeting said to me get to a meeting in person and I thought they are so kind I know today it's because I was interrupting every 30 seconds um, but I thought they were kind to me and uh, so I, that was my first Al-Anon meeting. I went to the Al-Anon meeting at the treatment center the next day. There were three little old ladies in that meeting. They looked like they were 103 if they were a day younger than that. They all had the little blue hair. I'm a newlywed. Um, and I don't know, again, what they said, but this is what I heard. Oh, honey, he'll drink again. They all drink again. But have hope. And I burst into tears because I'm like, what, what are you talking about? I have any idea what's going on, what are you talking about? But what they did say was they said the answers are in the literature. Ah, I'm incredibly well-educated. Literature, books, I can do that. But every Al-Anon book they had there, within a week I had every Al-Anon book published at that time. I was going to meetings, carrying them around in a canvas tote sack because my answers were in the book. I had no idea what the questions were, but the answers were there. Turns out I was asking all the wrong questions. Questions I was asking is, why does he do what he does? Why does he drink the way that he drinks? Why does he spend the money that he spends? And the biggest one I've always, why does he think the way that he thinks? And it never once occurred to me to ask those questions of me. Why do I do what I do? Why do I say what I say? Why do I act the way that I act? And why do I think the way that I think? Because it wasn't me, it was him. But that was where the journey started. Four days later, my husband went to the treatment counselor, family counselor, and said, I need to be rigorously honest with Corey. And she said to him, oh, honey, if you must, go with God. Um, and he came home four days in. He was four days sober. I, we, four days in Al-Anon. And um, he said, I need to be rigorously honest with you. And it wasn't a conversation I liked then. It's not a conversation I like when we have them today. Um, but it was essential for recovery. And he said, this is not my first treatment. Son. And he said, this is what he said to me. He said, I did not 
uh, graduate from college, I dropped out in the middle of my junior year to join the Army. There is not $25,000 of an early out from the Army in a bank account in Northern Virginia. I got kicked out of the Army for alcohol rehabilitation failure. This is not my first treatment center, it's my third, and one of them was a year long. Yeah, my people. Those are my people. Um, I don't know what you do with that information. I'll tell you what I did with it. I sat on the couch and just sobbed the entire night. I'll tell you what he did is he went to bed and slept like a baby. He'll tell you the reason he did it was the first time he was willing to be honest and suffer the consequences. That's what he'll tell you. For me, I will tell you it never once crossed my mind to leave him because I intuitively knew there was no way I could make that look good. I could not leave my husband after two months and not look like an idiot. And that was important to me. So I wasn't going to go. I didn't know what I was going to do, but it never occurred to me to leave. And um, after my husband came home and told me that, he went back to the treatment center the next morning and told them that. And I'll be forever grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous because his counselor happened to be a member of AA. And his, member, and his counselor said, well, you need to go to AA. And my husband said, I've been to AA. And the counselor said, you have? And he said, yeah. He said, did you get a sponsor? He said, no. He said, do you have a home group? He said, no. He said, did you work the steps? He said, no. And that member of Alcoholics Anonymous said to my husband, then you haven't been to AA. And they sent him to AA. And for us, that changed the trajectory not only of my husband's life, but of mine. Because he went to AA that night. He had to get a sponsor. He came home, and he said, I have to go to AA every day for a year. And I said, well, what am I going to do, being the spiritual giantess that I was? And he said, well, I think you should do an Al-Anon what I do in AA. They're basically the same programs anyway. And that became the next six months of my husband sponsoring me in Al-Anon. <laughs> so we started on this path. We started on the path together. But what's happened to us is we've been on parallel tracks. Because I can't ride his coattails on Alcoholics Anonymous. That does not treat my spiritual illness. And he can't ride my coattails in Al-Anon because it doesn't treat his spiritual illness. But it is what got us on the path was him being sent to Alcoholics Anonymous and me getting sent to, a a to um, Al-Anon. What happened to us very quickly, and I'll tell, I rarely tell this story, but... Um, I'm going to tell it today. Within 30 days, of, so Ken was going to AA every night, and I was going to Al-Anon every night. And he said at his home group meeting, within, he had like 30 days, 30 days, and he said, my wife's going to Al-Anon. And somebody at that home group who knew nothing about Al-Anon said, don't let her go to Al-Anon, it'll turn her into a witch. And that was not the word that he used, right? And my husband, God bless him, 30 days sober, said, well, that hasn't been my experience yet. <laughs> um, and thank God for that. That was somebody, I know today it was somebody who didn't know anything about Al-Anon, right? Because oftentimes, for me, to be a member of Al-Anon, I need to have a home group. I do. My home group is a Sunday morning Life is Good meeting. I have to have a sponsor. I do. Her name is Luana. She knows me. I talk to her every week at 4 o'clock, either on a Wednesday or a Thursday afternoon. I have to work the steps. I have. I've worked a bunch of times. I have to be familiar with the literature. I have to be willing to do service work. Most of the service work I do these days is sponsoring other women. Um, I have a committed meeting that I go to because I believe that I, I believe in the fatal nature of my disease. I do not believe that I will die of cirrhosis of the liver. I don't believe I'll die drunk. I believe I'll die worse than that. If I don't do Al-Anon, I think the, my fate would be 92 years old, bitter, angry, and alone, shaking my fist at the world. Why didn't anyone be with me? Because I'm miserable, that's why. That's the way I'll die if I don't treat how I have been affected by the family disease of alcoholism. 
And so I started going to Al-Anon meetings. He was going to AA meetings. And when I got into Al-Anon, there was not a lot of talk about sponsorship. There was not a lot of talk about literature. I remember asking somebody I'd heard about sponsorship in an open AA speaker meeting. Because what Kent and I did for the first year of recovery was we went to, we went to dinner and an open AA speaker meeting every Saturday night. That was our date night. It was the only amount we could afford to go out. And I needed to learn about the disease of alcoholism, and I couldn't learn it from my husband. Because my husband had lied to me about so many things. And I couldn't trust him. But I could go to an open AA speaker meeting, and you guys could talk about the disease of alcoholism, and I could believe you because you had no reason to lie to me. So I learned about the disease of alcoholism, and I learned what that meant, and I learned that it was not just the drinking. The drinking was but a symptom of it. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to Al-Anon, but I'm not going to Al-Anon for me. I'm going to Al-Anon to help him stay sober which made perfect sense at the time. And we were not in very long when my husband came to me and he said he'd gotten this sponsor, and um, he said his sponsor uh, said that he needed to go to this conference at the beach, this Alcoholics Anonymous conference at the beach. And I said, we cannot afford to go to an Alcoholics, for an Alcoholics Anonymous conference at the beach, and, um, and you need to call Steve and tell him that. Now, I will tell you this. I did not like Steve. as I didn't like him. I didn't like that he was my husband's sponsor. I didn't like him to that day. He didn't like me. Turns out that is completely immaterial. <laughs> I don't need to like my husband's sponsor. I'll be forever grateful to that man for taking him through the steps. Um, so he called Steve, and I know he called Steve because I stood right next to him to make sure that he did it right. And we had the phone on the wall with the cord, and he said exactly what I told him to say. Corey says, we can't afford to go to the conference at the beach. And this guy says... You said you were willing to go to any length and follow any suggestions. It's only $250. Um, I will see you at the beach. Click. And I thought, rude, 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 rude. And before I could say anything, my husband did something he'd never done before. He turned around to me, and he stood up to me for the first time ever. And he said, I love you, and you're welcome to come with me, but I'm going with or without you to this conference. I said I was willing to follow any suggestion this man gave me to stay sober, and I'm going to do it. I'd love for you to come, but I'm going with or without you. And I will tell you, the thought in my mind was, there is no way in hell I am letting my husband go to the beach where there are going to be a bunch of alcoholic women down there. I'm just not. I mean, I had this idea. I make crap up in my head. I call it information from nowhere, lands here becomes fact for me, and then I act on it as if it is reality, right? And I had this, I had this image in my head of what an Alcoholics Anonymous conference at the beach would be like. It didn't occur to me that you would all be sober. That thought didn't cross my mind. What did cross my mind was all of the women were going to be in cut-off shorts. They were going to be wearing tank tops. They were going to be sitting on the boys' laps, and they were going to be wiggling. I don't know where that came from. I made that up. So there was no way I was letting him go to, go, letting him go to the beach by himself. Um, so off we went to this conference. We had we had two months, three months in, maybe two months in. We're off at a conference. Um, I remember the the AA speaker, the Saturday night speaker. I remember the Al-Anon speaker. The AA speaker was Clancy. The Al-Anon speaker was Mary Pearl. The only way I can describe it for you is I was horrified. I was absolutely appalled. The people would get up in front of a microphone. They would be taping it back there. Um, room full of strangers telling incredibly intimate, detailed things about your life. Um, in my profession, we call that a confession. I hadn't heard anybody read anybody their rights, um, and I thought, there is no way. I was sitting right in the front row because I get distracted. 
I leaned over to, well, the first thing that happened before the Alan, before Mary Pearl got up there, I leaned, I leaned over to Kat and I said, I keep hearing about this sponsor thing. Do you think I should get a sponsor? And I now know today it was Mary Pearl sitting behind me. I used to say it sounded like she screamed at me. One of her sponsors said, oh, she probably did scream at you. Um, and she said, get a sponsor! And I was, I was humiliated that she had heard me. And then she got up and spoke. And I was just horrified by what she had said. And I must have looked like I'd been hit by a train because I walked out the door and the taper was there, a guy named James, and he looked at me and he gave me a set of CDs and he said, hey, honey, why don't you listen to her? You might relate to her better. And it changed the trajectory of my recovery. And he gave me a set of speakers from a woman out of Cincinnati, Ohio, named Kathy. And it changed everything for me. And then I went back to that evening meeting and I heard Clancy. And the only thought I could say, I, the only thing I can tell you about that was I thought to myself, we are not that bad. <laughs> We are not this bad. We don't need to, I don't know why he's doing it for as long as he's doing it, but I'm pretty sure we're not that bad. So 12 days, 12 steps, we can do this. Um, really, that, I mean, really, I like 12 steps, 12 weeks max was really all we really needed. Never occurred to me I'd be standing up here 24 years later. And I turned around to Kent and I said to him, when Mary Pearl was speaking, I will never do that. Be careful what you say, because I've done it a lot. Um, but we left there, and I listened to that woman, and she talked about the steps, and she talked about sponsorship. And I started, when I got here, I had this idea of a God that was this guy with a long beard, and I mean, stuff I made up in my head, a, a staff. There was the good girl list. There was the bad girl list. I was clearly on the bad girl list. Turns out I was on the goofy girl list. Still am. Um, but my idea was, I will just, if I ignore God, God can ignore me. He can take care of the big stuff like the Middle East and world hunger. And I'll just take care of everything over here. Then get my grubby little hands on and it'll all be good. Um, and I knew you were talking about God. And I didn't know, this idea of God that I had was, like, no, I don't want any part of that God. Because the last time I remember talking to the God of my understanding was um, in September of 1997. My father had been diagnosed with brain cancer. And I remember standing out on the porch of my, of my parents' farm saying, please, God, just let him live. Kent and I had just gotten engaged. Please, God, just let him live. I'll do anything if you just let him live. And my dad died. And I believed at that moment in time, I believed that he died because God didn't think I was worthy enough to help my father. So grateful to Al-Anon for giving me a different way of looking at things. I can't change the past, but I can change how I view them. And I know today, I was actually talking to Nancy about this morning, I'm so grateful my father didn't suffer. My father died within six weeks of being diagnosed with brain cancer. My father didn't suffer. My mother would have killed herself trying to take care of him. We all got to be there. Um, I wouldn't be able to look at that event without the program of Al-Anon and the gratitude that I have. Um, I have a relationship today with my mother that exceeds anything I ever could have imagined because when my father died, she chose to move to Montgomery to be with Kent and I. I've got other siblings, but she said, I knew you guys wouldn't leave. And so um, I've got to have a relationship with my mother that I wouldn't have. And I'm grateful that you guys have taught me how to be grateful for that and not to say, well, I don't have this. No, but I do have this. Um, so when I got here and you guys were talking about God, I'm like, yeah, no, no, I'm not sure about this whole God thing. Um, just not sure about the God thing. Uh, but what happened was I started, if you, for me, I came to enough meetings that things started to sink in. Um, I, I didn't mean for it to, but it did. And um, I, started, I started asking the universe for um, a sponsor. 
you think I need a sponsor? You know, if there's somebody out there, God, put, a, put somebody in my path. And what happened was a couple months after that, um, and I'll tell you the other thing. I watched my husband change in Alcoholics Anonymous. My husband was going through those steps, and I could vis- visibly see him transform. I could see him change. And I'd like to tell you I was happy for him, and maybe I was, but I was terrified for me. I was absolutely terrified for me because I was sure he was going to get better and find somebody better suited for him in AA and dump me. And if he dumped me, I don't know what I would have done. And so um, I was willing to go to NA. I was desperate. I had that gift of desperation. I was absolutely desperate because I didn't want to believe me because I love my husband. Um, and so I started asking. God put somebody in my path. And who he put in my path was a woman named Luana, whose husband had got transferred to Maxwell Air Force Base. And uh, I hope I never forget the night that she showed up at my home group meeting on a Wednesday night, 8 o'clock, and we were talking about the 12th step. And we do it in a circle where I'm my neck of the woods and got around to me. And I said, well, I haven't worked any of the steps. I'm carrying the message. <laughs> and it got around to her. And, again, this is what I heard her say. I know it's not what she said because we've actually talked a lot about it. And I know that she would not have said it. But this is what I heard her say. Oh, honey, you are not carrying the message. You are spreading the disease. Shut up. <laughs> and I went home in tears, sobbing. I mean, my, I had one feeling when I got here. It was a big one, and it was hurt. I could only be hurt. Um, I didn't know how to be angry. I didn't know how to be mad. I didn't know how to be sad. I knew how to be hurt, which is a very subtle form of self-pity. But I went home sobbing in tears. And Kent's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I think we both thought I was going to say I was quitting Al-Anon. And what I said instead was, I'm going to ask you to be my sponsor, which was a huge mistake to say to my husband because he was like a dog with a bone at that point. Because, you see, I'm going to meetings, but I'm not doing anything. I don't actually change in meetings. I get inspired to change in meetings, but I don't actually change in meetings. So I'm not doing anything that's suggested now and on. I have not worked a step. I'm reading literature, but I'm not doing anything. So I am helping my husband stay sober. And the way I came up to help him stay sober was he decided he was going to start running again. He was former military. He was in the Army, and he took up running very quickly after he got sober. And um, we both forgot that he was alcoholic because within two weeks he was training for a marathon. And now I have to help my husband train. And the way I came up with to help my husband train was I was going to buy a bike. But I wasn't going to buy an expensive bike. I was going to buy a cheap $79 Walmart bike because I wasn't sure how this was going to go. And so if you're training for a marathon, what you do is you train during the week, and then you do what's called a long run on the weekend, right? So he's running during the week. I am not on that bike during the weekend, during the week, because when I got here, I was twice the woman I am today. Um, and so, but I got to help him stay sober, and the way I'm going to help him stay sober is by him getting healthy. And so I'm going to ride this cheap bike with him while he runs six miles. Now, I'm not doing anything, so I'm on the bike huffing and puffing and hating exercise. You do not like being outside. You do not like sweating. I do not like heat in Alabama, right? And, and he's chatty. He's a big chatter when he exercises. Um, one time we were exercising, and he was singing cadences to me, Lyle, up the hill. And I screamed at him, I'm not one of your privates. And he said, honey, if you were one of my privates, I'd have killed you a long time ago. (laughs) Ah! So he's a chatter, and he's singing all this crap. And and what he's singing to me at this particular time is, what step are you on? What step are you on? What step are you on? Have you got a sponsor? Have you got a sponsor? Have you asked her? And I thought, i got to kill him. I mean, that's my solution, as I'm just going to run him over with the truck and make it look like a traffic accident. If I got one woman on the jury, I'm pretty sure I can get off. So we're, we're in this six-mile run when I whip around on the bike, I go up to the house, call Luana, and said, will you be my sponsor? And she said, well, why me, honey? I said, because I'm going to kill him. And she said, no, honey, why me as your sponsor? And um, I didn't know what I was saying at the time, but I do know what I was saying now. I said, because I want what you have. 
um, because I knew what she was living with because I was listening to her meeting. She had a husband who was not going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. She had a teenage son who was difficult to say the least. She had a younger son who was developmentally disabled, and there was laughter in their household, and she was happy, and they were happy, and nobody was trying to get anybody else to do anything different. Um, and I wanted that. And I was living in this tremendous amount of fear that Kent's going to walk out the door any second. And I wanted that contentment. I wanted that laughter. I wanted to be able to be present in my own marriage. And so she said to me, I said, I want what you have. And she said something that was critically important then. It is today. It's say to every sponsor, anybody who asks me, ever asks me to sponsor them. She said, are you willing to do what I've done for as long as I've done it to get what I've gotten? And I said yes, having no idea what I was agreeing to. Because had I known what I was agreeing to, I don't know that I would have done it. But I said yes. And that woman got me into the steps. And that woman got me into service. And that woman got me into the literature. And we took the focus off of Kent and we put the focus on me. The very first thing that started happening was I stopped riding the bike with him as he was going off and doing the running. Um, and what happened then is I'm focused on me and I'm looking at my role in this. There's um, When you do the inventory work, and I know in the big book, I don't know if it's actually in the big book or not, but there's a thing about saying on the fourth step, what's my part? Um, I don't like that. I don't like that because my part is never as great as your part, ever, ever. The four horsemen for me, rationalization, justification, defending, and explaining. It's never my fault. I would never have done what I had done if you hadn't done what you had done. You know, it's always more you than me. So where have I caused harm? Where have I done damage? And that's my sponsor Lane made me look at. Where had I done damage? Where had I done harm? And one of the very first things she pointed out to me was every time I tried to help my husband, um, I thought I was helping him. She said, maybe you're not, maybe, maybe that's not how he's interpreting it. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Of course it's how he's interpreting it. She said, no, maybe what you're doing is when he says he's going to do something and you step in and doing it instead of him, what you're really saying to him, what he's hearing you say is, I don't think you're smart enough to handle this on your own. I don't think you're capable of doing this on your own. You're stripping of him, him of his dignity every time you step in to help him when he has not asked. And I was like, ooh, that is not the woman I want to be. Um, and so I had to learn to take a step back. I had to learn to wait for somebody to ask me for help. That's a hard one for an Al-Anon. I am incredibly uncomfortable when other people are uncomfortable. <laughs> I do not like to eat. I'd like to do something and make it better so I don't feel uncomfortable. And she taught me how to do that. Um, and we're rocking all along. Ken's ending up going back to school. I'm very involved in service work. Um, all is well. In about five, six, seven years sobriety, recovery, I am starting to pay attention because you all have taught me how to pay attention. Alanon has taught me what it means to be alcoholic, what the disease of alcoholism looks like, that drinking is but a symptom of it, and I know something is not quite right with my husband. I don't know what it is, but I know something is not quite right. But here's the difference in me, and this is how I have changed since I've been here. I'm not talking to him going, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Can I help? Can I help? Can I help? I'm talking to my sponsor saying something is not quite right. And she is saying to me every time I sp speak to her, you can interrupt the process if you would like in order to make yourself feel better. But he will never get where he needs to be. Are you willing to do that today? And I said no. One day at a time for two years, I was not willing to interrupt the process of where my husband was. My husband will tell you he was in the midst of untreated alcoholism in the midst of Alcoholics Anonymous, but he wasn't talking to anybody. And what ended up happening to us was he came to me two years after I'd started this. And the way I knew something was not quite right with my husband is my husband's untreated alcoholism manifests in uncontrolled spending. And I say that not like, oh, retail therapy. No, no, I'm talking uncontrolled spending. And we got to a point where I could not not look at the credit cards. So we had to change all the passwords to the credit cards. He had to have his own bank account. Money had to be dropped in it. I lasted three days with his account before I had to call him and say, change the password. He said, I don't care. I said, I do. 
I can't do this. Change the password. And he did. And we just dumped this money in. And he came to me two years. And so I'm noticing things are showing up at the house that couldn't possibly show up in the house on his allowance. The thing that showed up first was this ginormous gun safe. The gun safe was so big it would not fit actually in the house. Right? Now, I'm incredibly well-educated. I am not stupid. I know if there is a gun safe, there are probably guns or other weapons in the safe. Um, but I'm not asking, and I know it can't show up on his allowance, so I'm not saying anything to him. And uh, two years into this process, he comes to me, and he says, I need to be rigorously honest with you. And I'm like, oh, God, I hate that. Didn't say that, and I said, okay. And he said, I have gotten us into some credit card debt. And my first response was, what do you mean, us? <laughs> That's how spiritual I was in the moment. And I said, hey, honey, it's okay. It's only money. We'll figure it out. But what are you willing to do different? Because he needed to do some things different. What I didn't know is because we were on the spiritual path together, is I was going to get the opportunity to do some things differently too. And he ended up doing a lot of things differently. And I always like to share this because I know my people are wondering, well, just how much credit card debt exactly did he get into? Um, $40,000 in two years. Thank you. Thank you. We were at a conference actually with your parents in Eureka Springs, Arkansas in 2014, and I said $40,000. Kent was sitting right about where Bruce was sitting. The dude sitting next to him says, turns to my husband where I can hear him and says, dude, that's nothing. Fist bump. And I'm like, you people, you people, you are so not like us. So not like us. Right? Oh, my God. So um, so we're $40,000 in credit card debt, and he's doing stuff differently. And, again, that's another way we're following the path, and our lives took a sudden right turn, and I have no regrets about that. Um, there's a guy out there who says, who talks, and he says, uh, if God had said, you've got to go through bankruptcy to develop a closer relationship with my wife, I'd say, yeah, let's skip the bankruptcy. Um, I'd do the same thing, skip, skip the credit card debt. Go for the closer relationship. That's how Kent and I got closer because things changed. Um, because we were both willing to do the work on that. But the finances have always been a huge issue for us. Um, and I'll come back to that in just a second. So we, he's doing all this other stuff different when he comes to me and he says, um, there, he's working for the Air Force at this point. He is a Department of Defense employee. He says they are asking for people to volunteer to deploy to Iraq and to Afghanistan, and I'd like to do that. And my immediate reaction was like, oh, God, no. But you've taught me to pause. You've taught me to say a prayer. And you've taught me to say, can I think about that? And can I talk to my sponsor about that? And um, he said yes. So I immediately called my sponsor. And I said, oh, my God, he wants to volunteer to deploy. And she said, uh, I had forgotten out of my mind. My, my sponsor's husband was a colonel in the Air Force, had deployed three times. The voice you heard on the plane going over when the Iraqi war started um, on CNN was his voice. <laughs> so she said, do you practice traditions in your marriage? And I said, you know that I do. And she said, and what's the fifth tradition? And the fifth tradition, I'll read it so I don't get it wrong. Each Al-Anon family group has but one purpose, tell families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves, by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives, and by welcoming and giving comfort to the families of alcoholics. And she said, well, if you're going to encourage and support your alcoholic relative, how can you possibly say no? I said, well, when you put it that way, don't guess I can. Love you. Talk to you next week. Bye. Click. Um, and so I said to Kent, I said, is this part of your ninth step amends to the military? And he said, yes. And, you know, the reason I was able to ask that question is because I had actually done the steps and I knew what the ninth step meant because I'd been to open AA speaker meetings and I'd heard people talk about making amends. And uh, he said, yes. And I said, then I will support you. I will stay back at home and I will keep the home fires burning. And uh, 
it was so long before anything happened. He called me on a Wednesday night, a Wednesday afternoon at work, and said, hey, um, I'm take, picking your mom up. We're going to dinner. Meet us at the steakhouse. So I said, okay. I met him at the steakhouse, and he said, I don't think I'm going to get to go. And it had been so long since we'd had this conversation because I placed this in the hands of my higher power. I had a relationship with God in my understanding who I knew wanted to be happy, joyous, and free. I said, go where? He said, I don't think I'm going to get to be deployed. And I went, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Doing the happy dance. One of those times, I don't know, I said, you just have to be willing. You don't actually have to do anything different. Yay, go team. Um, that was on Wednesday night. Monday afternoon at 4 o'clock, he called me at my office. He said, guess what? And I said, what? He said, I'm going to Djibouti. And I said, where? He said, Africa. And I said, wow. Because that's what you've taught me to say, too. Wow. Interesting. Hmm. Huh. Um, I said, well, I'm at work. And I, well, I'll talk about it when I get home. Love you, bye. Click. Hung up. Um, and immediately called my sponsor, and she gave me some very specific directions. She said, find something you can do together while you are apart. And um, so I did. Uh, and I, Well, I didn't. I made the mistake of saying to Kent, um, <clears throat> we need to find something we can do together while we were apart. And she, he said, scuba diving. And I said, I'm afraid of being underwater. And he said, scuba diving. Because Kent still hears what he wants to hear when he doesn't want to hear what I'm saying, which is, wah, 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 wah. and I'm like, oh, whatever. So... Um, I don't pay any attention to the scuba diving because he's going to Djibouti, Africa, one of the poorest countries on the planet. Um, and then he goes off to Indiana to what I call was Camp Attaboy, where they get him all prepped up to go. And I didn't know when he was going to go. He didn't know when he was going to go. And in August, he came to me and he said, I have to be in Djibouti in 10 days. I had 10 days to get ready to put my husband on a plane and send him halfway around the world. And I was going to get to see him once the entire time we were he was there. And... Um, one of the things that I had said, I didn't say it out loud because I didn't want God to actually hear me. I said I'd be willing to go anywhere he wanted me to go and I'd sponsor anybody he asked me to sponsor. Because my thought process was I'm going to be home by myself. And um, I was wrong about that because he started putting me on planes and I started going a lot of places. But people also started coming out of the woodwork. Um, the very first thing that I did was I dropped Kent off at the airport in, at the end of August. He said, don't cry at the airport. And I'm proud to report to you I didn't cry in front of him at the airport because it's progress, not perfection. And, um, and I drove my mom to my brother's house in Huntsville, and I went on to an AA conference in Nashville. And um, I, landed, I was in Nashville. He called me, and he said, I've just landed in Djibouti. It's, a, it's, 60, it's a 110 degrees. I'm in a tent with 65 guys. And I'm like, well, it sucks to be you, honey. I'm in a uh, junior suite with chocolate-covered strawberries. Um, but the next day, I got a call from a woman who said, I've been going to open AA speaker meetings with my husband, and the women of Alcoholics Anonymous said, I need to work the steps in Al-Anon. Will you work the steps with me? And I took that woman through the steps, and I started taking people through the steps. And I told you that when I started here, that when I got here, there, I just did not feel enough. I wasn't tall enough. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't funny enough. I wasn't cute enough. I wasn't, smart, I wasn't skinny enough. I just wasn't enough. I can't tell you when it happened, and I cannot tell you where it happened, but I can tell you that it happened. Sometime in that year while Kent was gone, I suddenly realized that I was enough. In and of myself, I was enough. I no longer needed to be married. I got to be married. And if Kent were to come to me and say, I got to go, it would break my heart, but it would not break my soul because I no longer needed to be married to him. I got to be married to him. And that's a whole different ballgame, baby. That's a whole different ballgame. And that happened because I was willing to trust the process. I was willing to trust, trust God. Kent got to Djibouti, Africa. Um, two days after that, I was still in Nashville and called, and he said, hey, my first scuba diving lesson is tonight. And I'm like, what? How do you scuba dive in Africa? 
I mean, in Djibouti, a godforsaken place. Um, turns out it's the second best place on the planet to scuba dive with whale sharks. I had no idea. I have since found out. Um, and I called Lorna. I said, he wants me to learn to scuba dive. She said, learn to scuba dive. I said, Lorna, I am afraid of being underwater. And she said to me, do it afraid, take God with you. Click. And I thought to myself, there has got to be some sort of weird sponsor camp that they tell send these people to. And I can't wait till I get there. I'm confident it's a 25 years, so I'm hoping this September I'm getting an invitation. But I did what she suggested because I followed every suggestion she'd given me. And I went and I signed up for scuba diving lessons. And I literally went to the place. I sat in my car. I turned to the seat next to me. I said, okay, God, apparently I'm going to learn to scuba dive. Try not to let me die. Obviously, I did not die. But what happened was they would send Kent anywhere in the world where it cost as much or less than to fly to Wetumpka, Alabama. Turns out you can go anywhere on the planet for that cost. And he said, I really want to fly you here, not to Djibouti, but to Tanzania. Let's go on a photo safari. I love to take pictures. I'm a big photographer. He said, let's go, let's go on a photo safari. And so he flew me to Tanzania, Africa, and we did a 10-day private photo safari through the Serengeti. And I took literally and I'm not making this up, 4,296 pictures. <laughs> Thank God for digital cameras. Um, and it was a trip of a lifetime. And we flew from Zanzibar, we flew from Tanzania to Zanzibar, and I got to scuba dive in the Indian Ocean with my husband. It was a trip of a lifetime. It was because you all taught me to walk in the directions of my dreams. Where I end up is up to God. And you taught me to do it afraid and take God with me, and I did all that. And so... Um, we're rocking right along. He, but I tell you, when I landed back in Montgomery, having spent these 15 days in Africa with my husband, trip of a lifetime, all I could do was just sob on the on my couch. I hate it. I hate how it was. If it weren't for the programs, he'd be here with me, and I wouldn't be lonely. Um, and I had enough sense that I was jet lagged and to go to bed, and uh, I was fine when I woke back up the next day. But nonetheless, I have those moments. And what you've taught me to do is not listen to the first thought. And what you've taught me to do, it's a program of action and take steps and to continue to take action and to walk in the direction of my dreams. And I said we had issues with the finances our whole marriage. Um, and we did. And about 17, 18 years sober, um, we'd come to a place where, where we agreed that we would not spend more than $250 on an item without talking to the other one first. Kent will readily admit to you, as will I, that we did that for him. Because it takes everything in me to pay, even pay 100 bucks for a pair of shoes. Um, but he can willingly spend 250 bucks very quickly. Um, and so one day we were sitting up. Oh, before I get to this, let me say this. So listen to me very carefully because I don't want to misconstrue this. So when Kent got back from Djibouti, he was not supposed to get any overtime. He was not supposed to work any extra hours. He did not get any hazard duty pay. But once he got there, he got put in a position where he had to uh, run a shop, a satellite shop, and he started making overtime. So when he got back, he said to me, do you know how much overtime I made? <laughs> it's me, of course I do, to the penny. I know exactly how much overtime you made. And he said, well, how much overtime did I make? And I said, well, how much overtime do you think you made? And he said, I don't know. I said, take a guess. He said, I don't know. And I said, $40,000, the exact amount of the credit card debt. Now, I am not saying to you, run up the debt, do the work, God will hook you up and get you out of debt. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is there is some synchronicity in the universe. There's some karma in the universe, right? And he, Kent was able to put that money back into the marriage because of the work he had done. So do the work. Um, but we would still had issues with money. And so one morning, I, I'm paying attention. My husband is sitting in the bed. He's watching YouTube videos about electronic devices. I know this about my husband. If he, he could purchase every electronic device on the planet and live in a tent, he'd be perfectly happy. Um, that is not me. But he's looking at a brand new watch. And I said, what you looking at? And this is what I heard. Nothing. Nothing. I'm not looking at anything. He said it didn't sound like that. 
whatever. Monday morning, he says to me, I bought the watch. I said, what watch? Actually, that's not what I said. I walked in the bathroom, I came out, and I said, how much did it cost? And he said, it was on sale. Back in the bathroom. Back out. How much did it cost? And he said, I can't talk about this right now. I need to go to work. And I thought, i got to kill him. Well, maybe not kill him. Maybe I'll just whack him in the head with a brick. And I called Luana at 7 o'clock that morning and said, I just want to hit him in the head with a brick. And she said, it will not get you the reaction you were looking for. (laughs) Wise words for my sponsor. But I ended up having to write him a letter and sit down and read it to him because I didn't want to have a conversation. I said, I just need to say this to you, and then you do with it what you want. You know, that gift of the second step of being willing to trust a power greater than myself um, is telling somebody how I feel and not telling them what to do about it. And I said to him, every time you do this, you damage the trust I have in our relationship. It's not about the money. We have the money. It's about the trust. And every time you break your word to me, it damages the trust in the relationship. And he took that, and he took it to his sponsor. Um, and God love his sponsor. His sponsor says, you do not have any moral high ground here, buddy. You do not. Do whatever she asks you to do. And I called Luana, and she said, you've tried the steps. You've tried sponsorship. You've tried everything. Perhaps you need some outside help. And our literature says, if you need outside help, go get it. I had an, I had an old idea about uh, counseling. Never been to it, but I had, a, I had contempt prior to investigation. And we ended up going to a family counselor about the finances. And we discovered something really incredible, is we were raised completely different about the finances. And we were raised with his ideas about finances and my ideas about finances. And as a result of doing the counseling, and we didn't have to do very much. We did five or six episodes of counseling, we came to a place where it taught us how we could talk to each other about the finances. And as a result of talking to each other about the finances, we're able to talk to each other about everything else. Every major decision we've met, we've made from that point forward has been a direct result of learning how to communicate with each other and to talk to each other about how I feel, not about what he's doing, how I feel, about what this means for me. And as a result of that, we've come to a really incredible place in our marriage. And I'm going to, I know I'm almost out of time, but I want to tell you where I am right now because of it's really, really important to me. So um, the pandemic hit, and uh, Kent was working remotely. We, I, did, I worked remotely for about two months, and then we went back into the office. And um, he did not. And it was very, very, very difficult on him. And we got to a place in the middle of that where he said, I don't know that I can keep doing this. And I said, what do you mean? He said, for the first time in my entire sobriety, I've thought about suicide. I'm like, well, no job is worth that. And he said, can I retire? And I said, I don't know. Let me look at it. And so I did all the work. He didn't wait, and he dumped the papers. But thank God he works for the federal government. It takes a while. So he dumped the papers. And... um, I did, I did all the finances and said, yes, we can afford for you to retire. This is what it's going to look like. If you stay until next year, this is what it's going to look like. If you go now, this is what this is going to look like. And he said, okay, I'm going to think about it. And then he went to his office, and he actually talked to somebody in his office. For the first time, he talked to somebody in his office about what was going on. And the guy was like, dude, why didn't you say something? Because he had his own solution. He was going to do it himself. And he came home that night, and he said, I've withdrawn my retirement papers. But the difference was I was willing to do it if that's what he needed to do. And he retired last June. We talked through it. He retired last June. It's been fabulous for him to retire because he's come to a place um, where he is good with where he's at. I am good with where he's at. I was supposed to retire last October, but I knew that if I did, I'd leave my boss in the lurch. So I said, I want to work until August. And he said, okay, I'm due to retire in August. Um, 
we started talking about what retirement was going to look like. We've always talked about what we, where we wanted to be and what the path was going to look like. I've always believed in walking in the direction of dreams where I end up is up to God. I discovered about three years ago, due to my mother's British citizenship, I could apply for citizenship. And um, Ken said, yeah, do it. We'll go live in, in England for a year. And I thought, okay. Um, he didn't think it would actually happen. I don't know that I actually thought it would happen, but turns out it did. On January 4th, I became a British citizen. And this morning they texted me and said, your passport is on its way which now opens up Europe for us to go and retire to because it's something we've talked about. We go for, to, I was telling you this morning, we go to Utah in a week. Kent goes to Utah next week. I go the week after to explore Utah to see if maybe we want to retire in Utah. Um, my mother is 88. She's lived across the street for us, from us for, 22, for 20 years. And in August, she moved into an independent living apartment in Montgomery. We're now 30 minutes away from her. We've talked about what that looks like for us. Kent and I want to live our life. We want to travel, but we also don't want to abandon my mother. So on Monday, we went with a real estate agent to put both houses on the market, and we're going to rent an apartment about a mile from my mom so that we can be there. Because Alan on has taught me it's about being there for my family. And as a I do everything I do so I can be there for my family. Um, and if I'm not there for my family, why am I doing Al-Anon, right? And that brings me to this. This is my last talk. I made a decision that I wasn't going to speak anymore because my mother said a couple of years ago, you're always gone on holidays. So I stopped going on the holidays. And then Kent decided because it was interfering with his work, he said, I can't keep leaving work. I've got to stop speaking. So he stopped speaking about four or five years ago. And I've kept doing it. But every time I do it, it, uh, we take my mom out for lunch every Saturday. We always have. It's part of my amends to my mother. And she's like, oh, you're gone this weekend. And uh, I told her I was coming this weekend. And she said, but it's your last, right? And I said, it is my last. And she said, what time do you get home? I said, 9 o'clock. She said, oh, I'm going to miss lunch. I said, I get home at 9 a.m., Mom. We're taking you to lunch. Oh, okay. Um, because you've taught me that's how I want to be a good daughter. You've taught me who is that woman that God's called me to be, that he's created me to be, and he's challenged me to be. And how would she act? My sponsor often says, not how would you act, Corey. We know how you'd act. How would she act? Um, and you've taught me to act like her. I don't know how much time I have with my mom. I don't know how much time I have with my husband. But I know this. I want to be the best daughter that I can be. I want to be the best Al-Anon member I can be, and I want to be the best wife that I can be. And the way that I can do that right now is to be home with my family. So um, I made the decision. I had an opportunity to reason out with Jane in October. And um, I made the decision last fall, having talked to God and to my sponsor, that it's time for me to step back and let other people step up. They won't ever ask anybody else to speak if I keep saying yes, so I've stopped saying yes, and this is my last one. And I was thinking about it all week, about what did I want to say to Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. What I want to say is thank you. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my husband's life. Thank you for a life beyond my wildest dreams. I continue to go to meetings. I continue to have a sponsor. I continue to sponsor when I'm asked to sponsor, but I'm going to stay home and I'm going to apply these principles with my family so that when anything happens, I have no regrets. I know we say in Ellen, I keep coming back. I have said for years, stay, stay with us. Stay with us long enough to develop a relationship with a God of your understanding. He wants you to be happy, joyous, and free. And until you do, borrow my God, because he wants all of us to be happy, joyous, and free. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for my life.